the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll spend today talking about a really difficult topic, death, with a rabbi who has performed more than a thousand funerals and has written a book to help us deal more consciously and tenderly with the end of life. Rabbi Steve Leader says something called an ethical will can help our loved ones better understand our lives even after our deaths. We'll hear what he means next on Detroit Today after the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. A lot going on in the world right now with the passage of significant uh, gun regulation in the U.S. Senate headed for the U.S. House and likely to the president's desk to be signed. We're also awaiting more opinions from the U.S. Supreme Court, which is in the middle of wrapping up its term by issuing the unissued opinions uh, in Washington. Uh, Just a note to let you know that we are, of course, paying close attention to all of this here at Detroit Today. And next week, we will be diving headfirst into those topics uh, with discussions about what the court does and what it means for us uh, in Detroit and Michigan and, of course, in our country. But today... As they say, there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. Now, that's a pretty cliched joke, and it's so timeless, it precedes the founding of our country. And without question, America has a pretty tricky relationship with both death and taxes. But we talk about taxes all the time, openly, incessantly, We argue about whether taxes are too high or too low. We worry about how to manage our taxes, how to pay them. But take a second and think about how often we do that with death. How often do we have really spirited conversations about death and what it means and how we deal with it? In truth, we rarely talk about it much at all, at least not in the ways that might lead us to more peaceful, more consistent, more reasonable interactions with the idea of the end of life. Our next guest wants to change that dynamic in a way that allows us to improve not only our lives, but also the lives of the people around us who are affected when we die. Steve Leader is a rabbi who has presided over a thousand funerals. He's written eulogies and assisted people who are going through their toughest time, a time when families and individuals often learn or relearn about what's most important in life. According to Rabbi Leader, 
believing that our legal will or our financial assets are going to sustain our families is like leaving them a picture of food. It's just not going to nourish them. His experience has led him to write the book, For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. It's a guide to ease the process of creating what he calls an ethical will, a document full of stories and reflections that we leave for our loved ones. Rabbi Leader explains that it is a document memorializing our wisdom, and it can both improve our lives in the present and provide the nourishment of our loved ones, the thing that they will crave when they are struggling with our loss in the future. Rabbi Steve Leader, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be with you today. Before we get to ethical wills, I want to start with the first question in your book. And as I said, uh, this is a book that poses 12 questions for all of us to kind of think about in the context of death. But the first one is, what do you regret? I thought that was a really provocative way to start this list. So tell us why this is an important question and why you put it up front. It's a great question. Uh, Part of the reason that the first question the book examines is, what do you regret, is because to answer that question honestly requires that we uh, really open ourselves up we crack ourselves open, and that we are humble and honest. And that is first, partly because that's the headspace I want the reader in to answer all 12 of the questions. But we need to get there on the first, right? So we want to get to a certain almost subterranean level of introspection. Hmm. of reflection, and that over my 35 years of asking these questions of families to help get my arms around the truth of their loved one's story, that question I have found to be the one that really immediately brings us to the proper depth to really reflect on a person's life, including our own. The other thing that's interesting about that question is what I have found in the answers, is that what most people regret most is not something they did, but something they didn't do. The words they didn't speak, the times they didn't show up, the opportunity they didn't grasp, generally, by the way, because of fear. Which is why the second question is, when was the time you led with your heart? When did you, when did you allow yourself to overcome whatever rational fear you had to make a life decision. But back to this question of regret, when you start to realize in answering these questions, particularly about regret, that what we most regret is something we didn't do. It changes, not the past. You know, I often say to people who are struggling with regret when they come to see me, Uh, that I have given up all hope of a better past. I think Mm -hmm. we just need to kind of triage that mindset right away and just say, look, 
there's only one reason to reflect upon the past, and it is not to change the past. It's to change our future. So examining our regret, our greatest regret, is really not about the past at all or about that regret. It's about not missing the opportunities waiting for us in a different kind of future. Yeah. And, and that's a powerful, powerful question and exercise for all of us. And so you're posing this question and the other 11 as a way of trying to get us think to think differently about death. And as I said in the open, um, we don't talk that much about death in this society, not in the kinds of terms that I think you're thinking. Um, is, it, is that about fear? I mean, you, you, you referenced fear there, talking about regret, that, that it is our fears that lead us to do things that we might regret or not do things that we might later regret. Um, but that fear also, it seems to me, drives our reluctance to talk and think about the end of life. I think that's true, but I would say only until it doesn't. <laughs> By that, right? When it's staring you uh, in the face. Is, yeah, well, yes. And literally, and I'll tell you a, a very powerful story from my own life about that moment. But there, first of all, let's begin with the fact that there is a time and a, 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 to appropriately suppress, and, and I don't know about completely deny, but certainly suppress and subordinate our thoughts about our own death, because particularly, by the way, when we're young, uh, in our 20s, 30s, 40s, when, when ambition is so important mm. that, that we, you know, if you think you're going to die at every turn, then it, it really suppresses ambition. You, you see that anybody who, I once uh, led a, a mission to Africa where I discovered that when you don't expect to live past your early 20s, you make a lot of bad decisions because there's really no consequence uh, if you're not going to live very long. There's no ambition, et cetera. So I think there's an appropriate time to, to put death on the back corner. But, you know, there's also something very powerful when we do reckon with our own finitude. Uh, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Hmm. And that's really true. But until we grasp in our innermost being the, the simple, profound truth that we are going to die, we don't really cherish how we live. And I'll tell you when this happened to me and the irony of it. My father died when I was 55 years old. And I flew home to Minneapolis where I was raised for the funeral. I'm one of five. My, my siblings, all our spouses, my mom, we were all in the room waiting for the rabbi to come in and escort us into the chapel to view my father's body in the casket before the casket was closed and the service would begin. When the young rabbi walked into that room, I remember thinking to myself, I know exactly how the rabbi feels right now, but I have no idea how I feel. How I feel, wow. And, yeah, and keep in mind, I had stood next to a thousand families gazing at the body of their loved one, and to be honest with you, it didn't affect me very much because I it wasn't it was vicarious. It wasn't my loved one. Now, 
I, my father and I have looked almost identical our entire lives. If you saw a picture of him at 20 and a picture of me at 20, you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> Which means when I approached his casket, you saw your own face. I looked into that. I looked at my father's body and my, my first thought was, hmm, that's how I'm going to look hmm. when I'm dead. And my son is bending over my casket. I am going to die. And I was 55 years old and had more experience with death than probably anyone but a mortuary owner. And yet I never fully faced the power of death and finitude because every brush with death is really not about death. Every brush we have with death is a brush with life, mm -hmm. our life. And that's why this book asks us, invites us to really reflect deeply on the truth of our lives so that we can embrace the beauty of what remains in our lives and we can leave a legacy that's meaningful to our loved ones when we're gone. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get to this concept of the ethical will and how it fits into this idea that you have that we can do better in the way that we th think about our own deaths and the way that we think about how our deaths will affect the other people around us. So so let's just define what that is. Uh, it's also sometimes called a, a legacy letter and and why you think this is something important f for us to, to be considering. Okay, one of the easiest ways, best ways to understand what an ethical will is to understand what it isn't. It is not a last will and testament. It is not an estate plan. I find it very sad that for most people, their last word to their loved ones is a dry, legalese, mostly boilerplate document written by someone who barely knew them. And it's all about our stuff. Who gets when? what and how much and that's our legacy that's our final word to our loved ones as you said in the intro that that's like handing them a picture of food it's not going to nourish them you know one of the saddest memories of my father's death and the aftermath of his death was going down into the basement of my parents home and seeing my father's stuff in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody wanted it. Mm. And this is the irony of our lives. We spend all this time and energy working, making money to buy things that nobody wants when we're gone. What do they want? They want our, our life wisdom. They want to know what we've learned from our failures and our regrets. They want our guidance. They want our blessings. They want our love. They want our hopes for them. That's what they want. And an ethical will is, is a document that bequeaths to our loved ones the legacy that's really going to matter to them, which is the legacy of the truth of our lives, our story. You know, a, an obituary tells you the facts of a person's life. Saying that I was born in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, that 
doesn't tell you anything about me other than my age. We want the truth of our loved one's lives, not the facts. We know the facts. And how do you, how do you get to that truth? Mm. I think one of the sort of implied criticisms, I think, that you're leveling here is that we don't like much of that truth and we're afraid of it. So how do we well, I, lean into the idea of recording it? I've actually found the opposite. I have found, and, and by the way, this is by getting families and individuals who are facing death to tell their story, to share their story with me. Most people really do want to tell their story. They really want their story to be known. They, they, they actually, we all, I think, enjoy reflecting upon the accrued wisdom of our lives and everyone's life. If you ask the right questions in the right order, everyone's life is amazing, hmm. fascinating, full of dualities in the human experience. Now, how do you actually get there? My editor asked me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? They just unfold a person's story. And I jokingly and not jokingly responded to her 35 years and 15 minutes. Because these are the questions I have been asking families for 35 years when their loved one dies to try and understand this person's story so that I can write a eulogy and that and they can begin to process the profundity of this loss. And people do want their story to be told, but guess what? Our story can only be told if we tell it. And I know that's difficult for some people because not everyone is a great storyteller. And that's why the book exists, is to, to really help each person who reads it reflect on each question. I, I write about each question, why each question is important, and then I curated the answers of a very diverse group of people to share their brief answers to each of these questions. And then there's a prompt for the reader at the end. If you, if you take this book seriously and spend, spend a few hours with it, I promise you, you will have the raw material of your story, of the truth of your story, the truths of your life. And then it will pour out of you. I wrote my ethical will in, in no more than 30 minutes because I had gone through this process. So I had everything I needed, and it just poured out of me. I've been uh, leading ethical will writing workshops all over the country for more than a decade. And when you get people in the right headspace and you get them reflecting on the right kinds of questions, it, our stories just pour out of us because we know our stories. Yeah, yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader about death and how we deal better with death than we tend to in this country. Uh, we want to get going on the phones and on social media as well. Call and talk to us about death, your own death, how you anticipate it, how you anticipate it will affect those around you. What about the death of your loved ones? There are things that you wished you had from them that you never got. Something like a legacy letter talking about their lives. How are you preparing for death, or are you? 
313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about death this hour, the ways that we deal with death and anticipate our own deaths, and the ways that we don't, the ways that we put it off or avoid thinking or talking about death in our society and how it affects those around us. Our guest is Rabbi Steve Leder, someone who has performed a thousand funerals and has also written a book called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. The book teaches the value of ethical wills, which are documents that include stories and reflections about ourselves that are for our loved ones when we leave. We want to hear from you as well uh, during the conversation. Call and tell us how you deal with death, the deaths of people around you, your own death that you might be anticipating. How are you preparing for that moment? How are you preparing for other people to react to that moment for you? Also, give us a call and let us know if you've lost somebody who you wished you had something that uh, they never left behind for you. I think that's a pretty common dynamic uh, in American lives. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. Um, Let's go to Perry in Detroit. Perry, welcome to the show. Yes. Uh, thank you, Stephen, and um, thank the uh, rabbi for this uh, very uh, enlightening show. Listen, uh, my mother passed March the 10th of this year. Oh, I'm so sorry, Perry. I, I, I haven't always been the best son, but the last seven and a half years of my mother's life, I spent with her being the son that she always wanted. When it came time for her to go into hospice, I made the, uh, the choice to have her do hospice at home. Um, instead of in some facility so she could be surrounded by people that she loved mm-hmm. and people that love her. And every day after work, I would go sit with her, hold her hand and pray. And her and I would reminisce about all, you know, sorts of things. Uh, and I know that my mother know that she was loved and she was careful. I know that my mother was uh, very pleased with me. We even had a Super Bowl party this year. I've been to a lot of Super Bowl parties, but it was just me and my mother. We had chicken, pizza, pop, me and my mother, my sister, and my wife. But listen, um, 
what the rabbi was saying about that ethical will. My mother asked me to take care of two people, uh, uh, a, a sister, my younger sister, and a good friend of hers. Hmm. Now, my sister and I had a very difficult, contentious relationship. And so I had to ask myself, when my mother asked me this, uh, do I want to hold on to my resentment with my sister or do I want to honor my mother's wishes? And I choose to honor my mother's wishes. So I believe that my mother left with me the ability and the desire to place her wishes and uh, what she wants as opposed to holding on to that resentment. Um, and, and, I, and, and listen, and lastly, I don't want to take up too much time. Grief hits so much differently when you know you have done the right thing, when you know that that person who has left is pleased with you. Uh, mm -hmm. And my grief for my mother now is that I miss her. I, I miss her tremendously. It's not that, oh, I wish I had it done this grief. I wish I had it done that. Um, and I, I, I'm just uh, pleased, so pleased uh, with my mother, yeah. um, with the legacy that she left. Uh, and it's just uh, like I said, grief hits so yeah. differently. Yeah. When you know, and, and also I love that. I love that idea of grief hitting differently when you know yeah. you did the right thing, yeah. Perry. That's yeah. such a powerful way to 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 think about it, uh, Rabbi you Lee. Know, I, 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 how you well, respond. I, I will say this to you, Perry, that you, in a, in essence, your mother wrote her ethical will verbally with you at the end of her life, and and left you this beautiful legacy. And the last question of the 12 is, what would your final blessing or wish be for your loved ones? In other words, if you could stand up at your own funeral and look at your loved ones and say something, what would it be? And your mother took the opportunity to say to you, which is, be good to your sister, and watch out for my friend. Yeah, wow. And, and now, the, the part of the reason that doing this is so important is, you know, a, a journalist asked me last week, if you had to summarize your book in two words, what would they be? And I answered immediately, don't wait. Because unlike you, I had no idea my last conversation with my dad was my last conversation with my dad. We didn't have that that time. Mm -hmm. And and so, and, and by the way, since this is ultimately a book about life, our lives and how we choose to live, one of the things I've found amazing is how many millennials are buying this book because they are asking themselves these very questions. What, what is my truth? How do I want to live? What really matters? Who really matters? What doesn't matter? These are, these are existential questions for every age and stage of our lives. And uh, I, I just, I'm so glad for you that you have the blessing of a verbal ethical will and and of not leaving behind any unfinished business, which is why, thankfully and gratefully, grief has hit you as a reflection of love rather than regret. Yeah, yeah, Perry, I really love uh, the story that you shared, and and again that great observation about uh, how grief changes for us. Uh, we've if we've done the right thing, uh, wonderful mm -hmm. phrase. Uh, let's go next to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? 
I'm thinking about my own obituary. I wrote it in advance, and I sent it out to some friends for proofreading, and nobody would give me any feedback. <laughs> uh, they said it made him too sad. Well, when I go, I don't want a funeral. I want people to get the obituary and to have a repast. Wow. Wow. Um, that's such a great, that's such a great thought. I mean, you've obviously spent some time really thinking about this, Bernadette. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I'm not, you know, I don't have any illness that, uh, I fear is going to hasten my demise, except this pandemic made me aware that, um, everybody is a little closer. Oh, yes. 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 You know, Bernadette, you, you hit it so spot on what the pandemic did was expose all of our vulnerability for all of us it pierced our our sense of invulnerability and we realized you really never know Mm. and i do part of the reason i wrote this book is it is part of this great reevaluation that's going on i think in most of us in america post-covid how do i want to live what's really important and what did I think was important that actually brings me no joy at all? And, and this, these questions are that kind of exercise in, in stripping away the nonsense and getting to what really matters in our lives. And it, unfortunately, takes death to enable us to do that. Because if we were deathless creatures, imagine if we were deathless creatures. We would never reevaluate our lives. It wouldn't matter. So it, death is such a powerful instructor mm-hmm. and teacher of life. And that's what you did in thinking through your obituary. And my guess is that your obituary was more than an obituary, that it had a lot more in it than just the facts of your life. It had some of your truths and loves also, which, which is really beautiful. You've, you've essentially begun the process that I'm advocating and good for you yeah yeah uh bernadette really appreciate uh, the call and uh, that insight let's go to annette in west bloomfield annette welcome to the show good morning and thank you both for bringing the subject to light i am a jewish woman who's a neonatal nurse at children's hospital hmm. and i see you i have seen death personally I have seen deaths of babies and um, family members alike. I have to say that, yes, the pandemic has woken up a lot of people on what they want to do in their life. And uh, to deal with death is very hard for anybody. I have to say the question I opened up with and why I called was, are you only talking about death or, as other people have called in, are we trying to figure out what way we want to truly live from now on, not for others, but for ourselves. And I always had to be the one who took care of everybody, not because I was the nurse, it's just that I was the only one in my own family. And I have to say that you have brought to light a very beautiful sounding book that I would love to read. And please do tell, is it more on the concept of how to live life, not just to remember our people? Hmm. Great mm-hmm. question, Annette. Uh, it, Rabbi the Peter. answer is absolutely yes. 
what this book really gives you is an MRI of your inner life that you can hold up to the light and, and say to yourself, okay, this is what I say I believe. This is what I say my truth is. Am I living it? Or am I pretending or distracted or, or fooling myself? or trying to fool others. And I think that is the most important thing we can do. We all have this set of what I would call professed values, the things we say we believe. And then we have our lived values. And when those two sets of values are out of alignment, that's a very painful way to live. Mm. The unhappiest people I know are people whose professed values and lived values are very far apart from each other because that's a double life and that's a horrible way to live. And the happiest or most content people I know are people whose professed values and lived values are pretty well aligned. Look, we all fall short of our own hopes and ideals sometimes. We're all human. But the closer we are to living our truth, not just speaking our truth, the more beautiful our lives really are. And so, Annette, you are 100% right. That's why millennials also are reading this book. This book is about life, not death, our lives. Ask yourself what you want your epitaph to be on your gravestone, and then ask yourself, okay, if that's how I want to be remembered, if that's what I want of my life carved in stone, am I living that way? Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation about the end of life and how we confront it, how we help the people around us confront the end of life for us. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Call and tell us how you confront death in your life. Uh, Do you talk about it? Do you plan for it? Do you talk with the people around you about what they'd like to have of you, from you, when you die? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Right today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about death uh, this hour, how we manage death uh, in our lives and how we manage it for the people around us when we are all going to, of course, leave this life. Uh, our guest is Rabbi Steve Leader. He is uh, the author of for, when, for You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to tell a life story. He's the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. Uh, He has performed a thousand funerals and thought an awful lot about the things we leave behind for the people around us. Not just the things, but the pieces of us that we can give them with something called an ethical will. We want to hear from you 
during this conversation, of course. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Um, Steve, there's something I've been thinking of while we've been talking that I want to get to, and it's it's the idea of the urgency of of this very question that you're putting to us. Uh, and and what it's making me think of is when we lose when we lose people early or earlier, than we expect. Um, you know, I lost my father when I was 14 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, every day since then, there has been a reason for me to, to want something from him, um, to, 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 to need him uh, for something. And, of course, you know, uh, it, it, it has led me on this great exploration of his life and who he was and where he was at various points. And, you know, it's almost like an archaeological dig. But listening to you talk, it's it's really interesting to contemplate how differently I might feel if I had, um, you know, something like an ethical will from, from him, if I had a way to kind of demystify his life through his eyes as opposed to through my own. Um, and I think, yes. uh, again, that gets to the idea that uh, that waiting to do this uh, risks not being able to do it at all, of course. Yeah, it, it is never too soon to reflect upon our own lives in a deep and thoughtful way and to write that down so that other people can can be a part of that story and know it. I, I will now. I'm going to offer you a suggestion. I have a very, very dear friend in Los Angeles whose husband died when their baby was uh, six months old, hmm. and she uh, read the book, and she said, "I really wish that Nick had done this." Uh, for Elvis, that their son's name is Elvis. I wish Nick had done this for Elvis mm-hmm. because he's going to have all these questions. And I said, well, why don't you answer these questions as if you're Nick? You knew him. And why don't? how about asking Nick's family, his mother, his sister, his brother, how about asking Nick's family to answer these questions the way they believe Nick would have answered them? Wow. And put it together for Elvis. And, and you know, Stephen, I would say, I don't know, uh, you know, but I imagine there are still people alive who you're close with who knew your father really, really well. Sure. And you might ask them to answer these 12 questions for your dad, for you. And I think it'll be a very um, beautiful exploration. Yeah, how powerful would that be? Um, yes, and by the way, they will wrestle with these questions just as your dad would sure, have. Sure, but they will be able to answer them, and and you will have a whole new experience with your father. Yeah, 
Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go next to Heather in Port Huron. Heather, what's on your mind? Hi. Uh, I was calling in um, because what I believe Perry had said earlier really struck with me. Uh, Grief, you know, does feel different or hit different when you know you've done the right thing. Um, I'm 32 years old. I've been working in healthcare, you know, throughout my life as a home caregiver, especially with the elderly. Um, And it definitely does hit differently when you know you've done the right thing because uh, I worked with a woman who was 101 years when she passed, um, had a great life, walked with Martin Luther King Jr., marched with him, was in a League of Women's Voters. She had a wonderful life and five children. Uh, Regularly, she saw two of them. And so three of her children that didn't come visit regularly had a dramatic difference in how they grieved her when she did pass. Because when she did finally go, um, her one, her eldest son was with her, and he was the only one there with her. And during the funeral procession and everything, um, and going, you know, over the eulogy, you know, you could tell in his face mm-hmm. that he had a sense of peace about him because he had learned her story and he was there with her in the end regardless wow and i think that i'll go ahead i i want to make an observation which is from my the book just before this book a book i wrote called the beauty of what remains i have found that people face death exactly the way they faced life both the person who's dying and their family that death really doesn't give a family a new dynamic or doesn't give anyone a new personality. Um, I I joke that death death uh, makes everyone themselves, but more so. We become more. And so if you had a dysfunctional relationship in life as a family, it's more than likely going to be uh, dysfunctional when you face death. And I think that it's important that we'd be honest about that. My guess is that in this woman's case, her son was always the only one by her side from the family, you know, that it was always dysfunctional. And, and, uh, I think we, that, that it's an opportunity. This again goes to the idea of really telling the truth. What you saw there at that funeral was the truth, not so much of her death, but of her life. And, and if you want a different truth at the end of your life, then you have to change the dynamic long before that, if you can. And sometimes you can't. One of the questions in the book, by the way, is have you ever had to cut someone out of your life? And the answer for almost all of us is yes. And 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 this is also part of our story. So I, I think that it, um, you know, if you want to have that kind of unfinished business, close relationship mm. in death, then work on it in life. Yeah, yeah. Heather, really appreciate the call and uh, that that really piercing story. Um, let's go next to Mitchell in Farmington Hills. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. So mm-hmm. I'm so this is just like a reflection. In fact, that when my grandfather died in like 2011, um, that was that was sad because um, he well, it was it was basically sad because he breathe past like the ventilator but then also I'm and then also giving my brother and I both squeezes not just like regular squeezes but heart squeezes Mm -hmm. but I'm kind of um 
reflecting in a way of how um, what my parents would say when I, um, if I was able to see them to say goodbye to them uh, back then, but I don't really know. And then my mother was scared, was sad, the fact that she might have almost lost her uh, mother. And when we were celebrating my step-grandmother's 90th birthday in Florida, where they called the family, and, and then it was like, well, we can't do anything about it because we just left. So it's like I'm kind of debating the fact what it would like to die, even though I know the Lord would take me whenever I, um, whenever I, whenever he thinks I'm ready. But I mean, I'm just like scared, maybe not mm. so afraid of what death would like be like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I have, this is one of the things that in the, in the last book, the beauty of what remains so many people found amazing, uh, and wanted to talk about is what is it like to really be dying, actively dying? And I've been by the bedside of hundreds of people, and I always ask, are you afraid? And 100% of the time, the answer has been no. Hmm. Now, people have fears when they're dying, but they're never for themselves. They're for their loved ones. Are the kids going to be okay? Is my husband going to be okay? Is my wife going to be okay? When you are really, really dying, when it's re- I'm talking about actively dying a day or two, not one person I've ever been with, and I ask, has been afraid. Because when it's really time for you to die, it is the most natural thing in the world. Now, how is this helpful for the living? It means that if you are anxious and worried about dying, it's not your day. Anxiety is for the living, right? And, and, it, and it's really, really going to be a peaceful experience uh, thank goodness most people do not die in pain in this country. And th- it's really uh, the closest thing I can explain it as is like when you've traveled and you have the worst jet lag you've ever had in your life. You're just led. All you want to do is get into bed, pull the covers up over your head, turn off the lights, and go to sleep. You're not anxious about going to sleep. You're not nervous about it. You're not depressed about it. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's what your body needs to do. And that's the closest I can imagine this this final part of life to be. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. It, it happens when it's time. And by the way, then people say, well, what if you get hit by a bus? Well, guess what? You weren't expecting it then either. You weren't, you weren't anxious three seconds before that either. So really, the anxiety of life is about life, not, not when we're actually dying. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, Mitchell, really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Let's go to Karen in Macomb. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, this is a lot to unpack, and I will try to... Uh, just go through it as fast as I can. Um, my mom died in February of this year, oh, and uh, we have um, an attorney sibling who got the DPOA, uh, Durable Power of Attorney, through undue influence. She violated numerous fiduciary duties she owed to my mom. Um, she basically abandoned my mom over at Medi Lodge of Melford. She left her teeth to rot out of her head. She failed to provide 
um, necessities for my mom. They would ask me, would you please have your sister contact us, your mom needs, you know, and would go through the laundry list of things um, needed. And she lived less than 10 miles away. Um, she rarely returned their calls. She barely visited. I would drive on a regular basis 100 miles round trip to visit her. Um, my oldest sister reported numerous inadequate uh, care deficiencies to the uh, administrator and to the director of nursing. And uh, the nurses and aides obviously didn't like that, so they cooperated with the attorney mm. sibling um, to, uh, out of vindictiveness and cruelty, retaliate against me, mm. come up with the most egregious lies to restrict my visits, accuse me of horrific things that I never did to my mom. And then I was banned three days before my mom died. Yeah. I had to file an emergency probate petition, and unfortunately, my mom died two days after that. Um, you have to have well-documented proof in order to ban a family member from visiting. There is nothing. This is an attorney your, who thinks, you know, she I want to have time. So, Karen, yeah. I, 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 I want to have time to respond. Yeah, so what's go your, ahead. What's your question? So, I, I mean, I, I, I think the question from Karen's story is how something like an ethical will can kind of set the stage for the way that we relate to each other around yeah. death. Uh, death brings out in some cases, in many cases, you know, the worst in, in, in us. It seems to me that maybe the ethical will makes us lean more into the best or has the potential to. Um, the ethical will is a... It, it, it can be instructive, but it does not really change a family's dynamic. Yeah. I'm, my guess is that Karen's sister was uh, difficult, that their relationship was difficult in life, and therefore it was going to be as they faced their mother's death. You know, some people often come to me and say, listen, I have a very dysfunctional family, but now that mom is dying, I'm sure we're all going to pull together. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, you know, I hope so, but I need to manage your expectations. I doubt that's going to be the case. Because if your family is dysfunctional in life, they're going to be dysfunctional in death. And what I would say to Karen is, again, I have given up all hope of a better past. The best we can do is have a different future, and not with her sister, but with her own inner being, her own, uh, the quality of her relationship with her mother, knowing she did the right thing, was a good person every step of the way, and her sister was her sister again. Yeah. Yeah. And and somehow we have to make peace with our, with the limitations of our ability to address dysfunction in other people. Yeah, yeah. Rabbi Steve Leader, it was really really wonderful to have you with us for this conversation today. I'm really grateful for the time and grateful uh, for your book, uh, which is for you when I'm gone: Twelve Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you. It was an honor. That's going to do it for us today. Tune in Monday when we're going to be joined by Linda Villarosa to discuss the hidden toll that racism has on American lives and the health of our nation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>